The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 1, verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Luke. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with church family after being out uh, for a couple of weeks. And uh, absence makes this heart grow fonder. And I'm just uh, so grateful to be back with, with my family. That's you. Uh, and uh, today we're, we're moving forward in our series in the book of Galatians, and uh, the title of today's sermon is The Good Gossip of Grace. And uh, that phrase, good gossip, it sort of highlights the fact that there are, there are two kinds of gossip. What one form of gossip or one kind of gossip is, is not good gossip. It's what you could call a bad report. Uh, it's when you say something about somebody when they're not in the room uh, in order to humiliate them, to belittle them, to discredit them. Uh, and this is a cowardly and oftentimes vindictive uh, form of gossip. Uh, and uh, one of the things that defines bad gossip or the bad report is, is the caricature. Uh, that's when you, you take one maybe possibly negative feature about somebody and, and, and make that the whole definition of their personhood. Uh, it's like the caricature artists in Central Park in New York City. If you've ever been there, uh, if, if they wanted to get back at somebody, uh, a caricature artist, maybe they'd notice the nose was a little bit lar- on the large side and, and, and they would make the nose enormous on the picture in order to humiliate the person for having a big nose. You are the big-nosed one, uh, is what a caricature, a negative caricature would say. Uh, and we do this with gossip all the time. It's, it's also a really cowardly thing because it's, it's like shooting somebody in the back, uh, but doing it with your words. Like you're, you're too cowardly to actually look them in the eye and tell them what you think, and so you wait until they're turned the other way, and then you shoot them in the back with your words. So that's, that's, a bad, that's bad report, that's bad gossip. But then there's Good gossip or a good report, and this is, this is the gossip that, that, that we engage in in order to elevate somebody in the eyes of other people. And so here's an example. I could stand up here and, and give you a whole lot of good gossip about the people I get to be on a team with. Cami Buffet and Bob Bradshaw, two of the hardest working people I've ever uh, worked alongside. David Filson, his life is a beautiful expression of his grace-centered theology. Uh, I don't know a whole lot of people who love as well as David loves because he, he just understands and comprehends more than most how deep the love of Jesus is. Uh, Angie Gage, her spiritual depth, 
Mallory Hammond and Nate Morrow, they're incredible leaders, very gifted leaders. Mark Nestor, deep affection for Christ. Emily Etchison would fit that, uh, that description as well. Emily Crutcher, an optimist who, who brings joy and levity to the room. Paul Lim, the smartest person in Nashville and also very humble. Wilson Benton, always a word of encouragement for me, the junior minister and he, he, he being the senior minister. Charles McGowan, incredible unifier uh, and leader, not just over a church, but, but, but citywide. I could go on, um, but I know you don't have time because you want to go see what's up with the Titans. But the good report is also good because it oftentimes gets back to the person who's being talked about and that lifts an encouraging spirit and every spirit needs to be lifted because we have caricatures about ourselves, right? We're, we're really hard on ourselves. You know, Charles Spurgeon, great prince of pe- preachers, once said to his students who were, were aspiring preachers, when you preach, do so with the assumption that there is a broken heart in every pew or in every row, because there is. You know, Michael Easley, who's a pastor here in Nashville and also a friend of mine, uh, says, I love this, and I actually have an email that, that sends this quote to me every Sunday morning just to remind myself of this. It's this automated email I send to myself, quoting Spurgeon and then Michael Easley, who said, every person is insecure and under-encouraged. So work really hard to encourage. So Paul, Paul had a mixture of these forms of gossip. He had bad reports and good reports uh, flurrying around about him. The bad reports were coming from the, the, the people that uh, are defined in Galatians as the circumcision party. And, and these were really people who, uh, when it came down to it, they felt threatened by Paul, his ministry, uh, his message of grace, and how it was really resonating with people. And uh, they were threatened because people like Paul were coming along and, and taking the market share of religious people, right? At least that's the way the circumcision party saw it. And so they were, they were saying things behind his back in order to humiliate him and discredit him. But then there's also good gossip. And it's the kind he talks about here, where, where people in Christian communities and, 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 and circles were saying about Paul, this, this guy used to persecute us. He used to hurt us. He used to be violent toward the cause, and and now he's preaching the faith that that he once tried to destroy. This is unbelievable. Transformed life, right? So good gossip. So what I'm going to do in the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about two bad reports that were going on or going around about Paul and still do. Uh, Bad reports about Paul and then then the good report, which really should trump, in my opinion, the bad reports altogether. So the bad reports about Paul are he's too intense and he's too welcoming. Seems contradictory, but he, he, he would get criticized for both. So, so the bad report on Paul, first of all, he's too intense. They weren't just saying it about, about him back then, they're saying it about him now. The Huffington Post defines the Apostle Paul or identifies him as the crazy uncle that nobody wants to talk about for two reasons, his tone and his message. So his tone sometimes can be a little bit get up in your grill. Um, one, uh, one of our, our friends is a woman who has a podcast, she's a Christian woman, um, 
seven on the Enneagram, so she's just very lighthearted as well. And, and one of the things that she has said publicly is, I really struggle with Paul. Our relationship is complicated. Paul is not as easy for me as Jesus and John. Because he comes on, he seems to come on so strong. You know, there's an intensity about Paul. And it's, it, you know, he comes right out of the gate in Galatians in the first chapter uh, and gets in the Galatians' face. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the message of Christ and, and Christ himself. I'm astonished. If anyone should preach a gospel other than the one that you heard from us, let that person, even if it's me, even if it's an angel from heaven, let them be eternally condemned. Let them be anathema. He goes on to say in, verse, or in chapter 5, let them emasculate themselves. Complicated relationship with Paul. It's understandable. Or if you go to the 15th chapter of Acts, you've got Barnabas, who's described by the Bible as the son of encouragement, probably a solid nine on the Enneagram with a nine wing, maybe, uh, if that's even possible, Enneagram people. But, 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 but Barnabas comes to Paul, the apostle, and says, I would really like for us to include my nephew, John Mark, on this mission that we're about to go to to various cities. And Paul, perhaps being an eight on the Enneagram, the challenger, says, not on my watch, John Mark opted out the last time we went on a mission, whether he was just too busy or too afraid. But as I see it, John Mark's a liability, no second chances, strike one and you're out. Now, Paul would change his mind about John Mark later. But the point being that Paul was pretty intense sometimes. And just a little sidebar, a little rabbit trail, here's why. Same reason that a parent is going to get intense with their kid when the kid is doing things or thinking things that are self-destructive. You get intense because you love them. Not because you're against them, but because you're for them. But Paul was interpreted as being against. And here's why. Because of his message, which was, Sometimes heavy, oftentimes confrontational, oftentimes countercultural. And, you know, he says things again in chapter one, like, I'm, I'm astonished by you. He, he says that they are deserters. He says that they are perverting the faith. He uses strong words. And then in chapter five, he talks about works of the flesh, and, 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 and he confronts these things that he calls works of the flesh. And the interesting thing that you will see if you look at this list of works of the flesh is like any other place where Paul calls out a whole list of sins, he's an equal opportunity offender, meaning that his list of sins that he is confronting are so comprehensive that nobody can escape them. There are pagan sins that he calls out like sexual immorality, orgies, drunkenness, debauchery, gluttony. And then there are churchly sins, also gluttony, uh, and strife, divisions, party spirit. So, so basically, to religious moralists, Paul's message is, you are too hard on other people. 
You're creating barriers that, that God doesn't create. You're actually erecting barriers of entry into the community and into the faith. You're, you're, you're erecting barriers that God sent his son in order to demolish and break down. You're contradicting him. So to a religious moralist, he's saying you are too hard on others. And to secular culturalists, he's saying you're too soft on yourselves. Because you see, you don't get to define yourself. Truth does not come from within you. It comes from outside of you. And it names you that way. So it's like he's saying, hey, church, stop imposing rules on people that God doesn't. You know, stop trying to make them, in this case, culturally Jewish. Don't insist that they keep all the same traditions, you know, the, listen to the same music, vote the same politics, raise, raise your children in exactly the same way and according to exactly the same philosophies, celebrate exactly the same holidays, spend your money in this way or that way. Don't impose that stuff. Don't elevate things that are non-essential to the level of essential, okay? So, hey, church, stop imposing rules on people that God doesn't. And, hey, culture, stop trading truth for lies. Stop trading truth for lies. So what, what does that look like? So, so, so Tim Keller, uh, pastor from New York, friend of our community, uh, he did this uh, talk uh, recently at Dallas Theological Seminary where he's uh, he's analyzing sort of some, some church and culture questions that are being asked. And one of, the, one of the questions being asked is, why is it that young people in particular, and he describes young people as people under the age of 20, um, are not locking in to the Bible as the source of all truth and, and, and the source of all that is right. Why are younger people more reluctant to lock into the scriptures than maybe in generations past? And his theory is that it's because most people under the age of 20 spend on average four hours a day on social media. And maybe if they're lucky and if they're religious, four minutes a week, <laughs> you know, on Bible things. And the way he puts it is this, that, 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 our, that young people are being catechized by the world, catechized by the world instead of Scripture, and the sermon that the world is preaching and the catechism that the world is promoting is, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Everything else is subservient. Everyone else is subservient to your rightful demand to be true to yourself. You get to name you, you get to identify yourself, you, you get to establish and name what your identity is. Be true to yourself and don't let anybody get in the way of that. But he says, you know, this, this isn't just a youth phenomenon, this is an adult phenomenon as well. And, and Keller goes on and he says, where it shows up with adults, where it shows up... The, where, 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 where it's revealed that, that adults are also being catechized, not by Christ, but by the world, is in the way it shows up in political polarization. He says there's a left-leaning idol, which is individual freedom, and then there's a right-leaning idol or a set of idols, which are blood, soil, and nation. 
Okay, and, and Keller goes on to say, this, this has created this phenomenon as Christians, as those who profess to be Christians, have conflated po- partisan politics with Christian faith. You've gotten these imbalances, he says. Over here, you've got blue evangelicalism, which is zealous about social justice, except for the unborn. Zealous about social justice, except silent with regard to the human rights of the unborn. And then over here, you've got what he calls red evangelicalism, which is zealous on behalf of the unborn, and yet silent regarding the poor, the immigrant, the minority, women. See, Paul is a lot like Tim Keller. He's an agitator. He's going to leave everybody in the room walking away feeling uncomfortable about something. No preacher has done their job until everybody leaves uncomfortable about something and hopeful about everything. (laughs) Get to the hopeful part in a minute. But hopefully right now you're feeling needled. Paul is an agitator. He's an alarmist toward the world's catechisms and toward the world's norms. And there are the world, by the way, (laughs) screams from pulpits. It's not just the world out there. It's the world in here. You talk about slippery slopes. You don't want to slip into an overly secular or an overly religious direction. You want to to be right on the line. Don't worry about getting too close to the line. Be on it. The line being words of Scripture like the words of Paul. Here's where we're agitated the most today. Paul's an agitator and alarmist because he says, if you're a Christian, then you're going to be conservative in your sexuality. Go to Romans 1. Go to Galatians 5. It's it's very clear. These are the safe, healthy ethical guardrails for sexuality according to Christianity. One man, one woman in marriage, or a single person living chaste for the glory of God, like Paul did and like Jesus did for the duration of their adult lives. The response to this kind of teaching then and now is that it's culturally regressive, it's stifling, It's not only disagreeable, it's evil to think this way. Too conservative. And here's what Paul would also say. If you identify as a Christian, you'll not only be conservative with your sexuality, you'll also be be promiscuous with your money. See, because the, the call to biblical generosity, according to Paul, is a call to every follower of Christ, not just some followers of Christ. Paul urges, and it's right there, especially in his Corinthian letters, 100 participation, 100% participation in a generosity culture in the church and out in the world. 100%. And, And the spirit of Christian generosity, as Paul defines it, is that it is extravagant and, you know, our translations say cheerful. The, the, the Greek actually means hilarious. There, there, there is this certain levity and joy and, and sort of thrill that comes with the opportunity 
to let go of resources for the sake of the kingdom because it's just a, res- a response to the way that, that, that God let go of his most precious resource in order to purchase us in his son Jesus. Conservative in your sexuality, promiscuous with your money. For some, that means you probably ought to consider something way north of 10% of your wealth in terms of what you would give away. Way north. Like maybe 40%. Or like maybe 70%. Or like maybe like C.S. Lewis and Rick Warren and their wives, 90%. Because it just doesn't make sense that you could possibly spend on yourself more than 10% of of the extravagant wealth that that, that somehow you've been privileged to receive and to steward. See, Paul's an agitator. He wants that kind of teaching to feel and sound hilarious. Not in a laughing it off sort of way, but, but oh my goodness, let's get up and go. We get to give just as we've received. And then for others, it's like the poor widow who, who has just a little bit to contribute, and yet Jesus looks at her tiny little numeric gift and says, that right there is the biggest gift that was given today. Because everybody else gave out of their excess. Everybody else gave out of, in such a way that they didn't feel it. But she, but she gave from, from what she's living on. You know, people who say, I can't afford to be generous, Paul says, you can't afford not to. For the same reason that Spurgeon looked at his congregation over issues like these, conservative with your body, promiscuous with your money, and said to his congregation, I suspect that only 20% of you, only 20% are actually Christians because of what you do with your sexuality and what you do with your money and what you don't do with both. See, faith bears fruit. Is it any wonder that even Peter said, Paul is hard to understand. He's hard to understand. And he also said, there's so many people who take Paul's teaching and distort it to their own destruction. See, it's not a new phenomenon. Paul was regarded as too intense back then, just as he is by many now. Another bad report is that he's too welcoming. So this this is one of Jesus' very public, remarkable ways of impacting Paul. Paul suddenly, after he became a follower of Christ, had this new affection for people that up to that point he had wanted to destroy because he despised them. There's news spreading, and it's, it's here in verse 23, where it says that people everywhere are saying that the, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Like there's this story, there's this before and after scenario. There's a that was then, but this is now. What do we, how do we make sense of all this? See, Paul had also been a committed Pharisee and, and, a, and a, a young rabbi quickly ascending in the ranks. And part of what it meant to be an ascending rabbi in the Pharisee sect was that you had a disdain toward people who were not ethnically Jewish, toward, who were not ethnically descendants of Abraham. There's a disdain toward Gentiles for their religion, for their politics, for their culture, for their race. 
And here's what happens as soon as Jesus Christ gets a hold of Paul. He not only becomes Paul the apostle, but he comes, becomes Paul the apostle to a specific target group. And his specific target group was Gentiles. It's as if Paul is, is continuing the tradition of the disciples where, where you've got John and Peter probably, you know, John probably another Enneagram 9. He just wants everybody. He's a comforter type. He's sanguine and just extraordinarily kind. And you've got Peter who's probably an 8, you know, aggressive, abrasive, not really great with impulse control sometimes in social situations. Peter and John, they're not only part of the 12 together, they're part of the inner three together. They live together, they die together, they're, they're the best of friends. Or then you've got Simon and Matthew who, you know, one might be regarded as the first century blue evangelical and the other a red evangelical or something, but they were political opposites, and yet they walked together with Jesus, they lived with Jesus, they died with Jesus. We have, we have no record of either one of them leaving their political affiliation, and we have no record of them ever getting into an argument with each other. They just loved each other, and their first loyalty was the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom above all kingdoms. Or you've got Mary Magdalene, who's, who's propped up as, as one of the, the, the chief disciples, you know, hand-selected by Jesus himself to be one of the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and, and how that moment, uh, you know, sort of raises her to the level of leadership equality with the apostles. Go tell the others. Go tell Peter and the others that Christ is risen. And then you've got this dynamic of men and women traveling in, in ministry and missionary tribes together, advancing the kingdom. You see this as Paul lists all these names of people that he traveled with, men and women. That wasn't common at the time. See, for, for a lot of people, this is too radical. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, the grace of God for our kind. It's quite another thing to say, the grace of God for our kind and for their kind. Scandal of Christianity is that it will develop in us an affection for people that we were once inclined to despise. So Ray Hinton wrote this, this, uh, this book, it's a memoir called, Anthony Ray Hinton wrote this uh, memoir called The Sun Does Shine, and it, it's his memoir about being falsely accused of murder. Uh, his alibi was open and shut convincing. I mean, he was clearly somewhere else, clock, you know, clocked in at work. Cameras caught him at work during the time of the murder. And, and, and very clearly, you know, the ballistics report, the, the bullets didn't match the murder weapon, abundantly clear. And, 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 and because he had black skin, those in charge in the judicial system buried all that evidence, put him away and put him on death row. And he sat on death row for 30 years. And as if that wasn't enough, on death row, in his daily community was a man named Henry Hayes, who was the son of the top Ku Klux Klan leader in Alabama, and was himself on death row for beating, stabbing, and lynching a young boy to death because he was black. So... 
Henry Hayes had been taught all of his life by his parents to hate people because of their color of their skin. Anthony Ray Hinton had been taught all of his life by his mother, who was a follower of Jesus, to love your enemies. And that's precisely what he did on death row with Henry Hayes. Henry's last words before he was put to death because of Ray Hinton's influence in his life. All my life, my father, my mother, and my community taught me to hate the very people who would later teach me to love. Tonight, as I leave this world, I leave knowing what love feels like. That's how Christianity works its way out into human relationships. It's not for the faint in heart. It's not easy. It's not comfy cozy like a cup of coffee next to, next to a candle with your Bible open and a highlighter. It's much more disruptive and traumatic than that. It's much more glorious than that. Actually, the, the candle and the Bible and the lighting, that's actually supposed to lead to this kind of stuff. This comfy air-conditioned room and these sermons and these songs and this table, it's supposed to lead to things like this. Marriage is mended after infidelity. Parents forgiven after raising their kids poorly. Children pursued as they are running away from the heart and the place of home. Republicans having affection for Democrats. And blue state people having affection for red state people under Christ. Paul's tone in his message, how, how does he get here? Where this alarming, offensive stuff actually becomes a meaningful pursuit. It's all about Christ first pursuing him. It's all about Christ, whom he had treated as an enemy, reaching out to him to become a friend. It's all about Christ, whose dearest people Paul was destroying, who came to Paul and said, come be one of them. I'm going to show the world through what I do with you what mercy looks like. So you can die... And as you leave the world, you can do so knowing what love feels like. And that leads to the good report. I'm going to keep this one short and sweet because it's just so obvious, I think. I hope you'll think it with me. The good gossip about Paul is that he is too believable to ignore. Regardless of what you think about his intensity, intensity or his open arms, it, it, it's just too believable to ignore. He used to persecute, now he preaches the faith. How do you explain that? Well, he says, he says, here's, here's how this happened. My source material was Jesus Christ himself. It took him 14, somewhere between 14 and 17 years before he actually compared notes 
with the other disciples. You know, he, he says it right, right here. That he spent virtually no time with the apostles except for a little visit with Peter and James, but really not a whole lot of time with the apostles at all, that, that, that he was unknown to them for somewhere between 14 and 17 years and vice versa. So how do you explain him bringing the message of the gospel in such clear ways? It's back, from, back in verse 12. He says, I didn't get the message from, from people. I got it through revelation. I got it through a vision and, and time and teaching from the risen Jesus Christ himself, a primary source. That's where I got this. You know, and Paul, Paul speaks so glowingly and with such strength about the resurrection of Jesus, which, if true, changes everything. It just changes everything. And, it's certain, and his, his own life and the, the transformation that's happened in his own life is like exhibit A of what the resurrection does. It also makes you humble. And this is, the remarkable, this is a remarkable character attribute that, that, that's really unexplainable in Paul. He was sort of pridefully advancing beyond all of his peers in Judaism. Then he meets Christ and he all of a sudden becomes this incredibly bold and humble man. You know, Romans chapter 3, again, after, after dropping the hammer on all of the different ways that people were seeking independence from God, he asks the question, what about us? Are we any better? Absolutely not. We're not any better. And then he gives us Romans 7 where he talks about his, his inward struggle with coveting. First Timothy 1 where he truly thinks of himself as the chief of all sinners and the, the greatest you know, the person in the greatest need in all the world of, of the mercy and forgiveness and kindness and generosity of God, the free grace of God. Paul's showing us as a, as a leader, as a global leader, the same thing that really good parents show to their children, that good leading and good parenting isn't at all about being free from failure. It's about doing everything that we can to be free from hypocrisy and dishonesty about the fact that we too fall short of the mark. You know, Paul is constantly humbling himself. That started all the way back in Old Testament days. And uh, take Jonah, for example. You know, Jonah, by the book of Jonah, all four chapters present Jonah as this cowardly, entitled, vindictive man who's actually furious. He's actually furious that God is gracious. He wants God to be gracious to him, but he's furious that God would be gracious to people that he doesn't particularly care for. I mean, he, Jonah in the book of Jonah is painted as the guy that you'd never want to be a roommate with, you'd never want to be married to him, you'd never want to have him as your dad or your son. Who wrote Jonah? Jonah wrote Jonah. It's as if Jonah is saying, I want you all to know me. I want you to know me because I want the freedom of honesty in relationships and I want my story to tell of the mercy and the kindness of God. Then you've got David, same thing, unfaithful to his wife while being unfaithful with another man's wife 
And David gives us Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. And he publishes it for us. Because it's like David is saying, hey, world, I want you to know me. And I want, to know, I want you to know how dark it's gotten for me and my abuse of power uh, and my sex addiction. I, I, I want you to know me. And I want you to know that if God can be this merciful to a guy like me, if God can restore everything to a guy like me, if God could even make a way for Bathsheba and me to move forward in marriage after this and bear children together and call the name of that child peace. Solomon, shalom. Then what do you think God might be up to in your life? It's almost like the scandal is the validation. It's probably why C.S. Lewis said that, that Christianity has to be true because no human being would have ever invented it. You know, on Jesus' resume, which is his genealogy, it wasn't what you'd done, it was who you were from. You know who's included on, who Jesus made sure to include on his own genealogy? Abraham, who was just horrible to his wife, betrayed her repeatedly. Jacob, who was a pathological liar. David, already talked about David. Rahab, a prostitute. You catch that? I mean, here's the message of the gospel. Here's, here's Paul's message. Here's Paul's message. And I hope this will be what make you like Paul. We have all brought shame on ourselves. And the result of the shame that we brought on ourselves is, is gossip about Jesus, where he takes the blame and absorbs the shame the things we've done. He gets bad gossip and a bad report about him that he does not deserve so we can get good gossip at the throne of God in ways that we don't deserve. That's what this table is for. This table is the Lord saying, I took the bad report on your account so that you can have the good report on my account. Let's eat and drink. Shall we do that now? Uh, before we do that, let's stand together and we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together as Pastor Filson comes forward. And also, everybody who's serving at a table, please come to your table. And children, please come in and rejoin your parents. And uh, let's turn our attention to the screen, please. How did our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth.